begin by telling you the story of one of the, the greatest missionaries of all time. His name was John Patton. Missionary to New Hebrides, which was an island chain of about 80 islands off the South Pacific. During the days of John Patton, many of these islands were filled with cannibals. Kids, you know what cannibals are? What's a cannibal, Preston? They eat other people. And uh, in fact, some 20 years before Patton arrived as a missionary of these people, several other missionaries landed on the beach to, to spread the message of the gospel to these people. The ship rode away, and in the sight of the ship, these missionaries were killed and eaten on the spot. And when John Patton thought about going to these people, an elder in the church warned him that you too, John Patton, would be eaten by cannibals. And I love his response to this man. It's classic. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are old and advanced in years now. And your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. In the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. And John Patton then devoted his entire life to serving those in the islands of the New Hebrides. And at one point, he saw an entire island, the island of Aniwa, turn entirely to Christ. The whole island came from cannibalism to worshiping the Lord Jesus through His works. He was indeed one of the greatest missionaries that God has given to us. But what made John Patton to be such a man, filled with such courage to go to dangerous places to, fill, to uh, preach the Gospel of Christ? I believe much of it had to do with his father's example. Here's Father's Day. It's a great example of his father. <clears throat> John Patton's father had a strong desire to be a minister of the Gospel. But when he saw that God's will for his life wouldn't be in that direction, he instead entered into a solemn will and covenant with God that if God gave him sons, he'd consecrate them unreservedly to the minister, ministry of Christ. It's kind of his goal. He said, you know what? I can't be a minister of the Gospel, but I'm going to dedicate my children to the ministry, if at all possible. And, and, you know, he worked long and hard, sun up to sundown, six days a week. He took Sunday off, spent it in church, where, by the way, going to church in 40 years, he had to walk four miles to church. He missed church three times. Once the snow was too deep, once the ice was too slick that caused him to fall down a couple times, and going up and down the steep hills he had to follow, he had to crawl back home. And uh, once there was an outbreak of cholera and he wanted to go, but the village people pleaded with his wife to say, please don't let him go because he might get sick and bring it back among us. Just His dedication, his love for the Lord, he just wanted to be with God's people. Utterly devoted in his family to promoting family religion in his home, the testimony of John Patton was that every morning and every evening for 40 years, prayer and the reading of the Bible and holy singing took place in his home. Listen to the impact that such an example left on his life. John says this, When I was 12 years of age, how much my father's prayers impressed me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand. 
when on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love Him as our divine friend. As we rose from our knees, I used to look at the light of my father, on my Father's face and wish I were like Him in spirit, hoping that in answer to His prayer, I might be privileged and prepared to carry the blessed Gospel to some portion of the heathen world. It's the impact that a father made on the son. Because the father loved his children and loved John and loved his Savior and desired to do everything he could to promote godliness in him. And, and I love the story of when John was to leave for his hometown and attend Divinity School in Glasgow. About a 40 miles walk from where he lived. And um, I, don't, I don't know how old John Patton was at this time. I'm guessing, you know, maybe 18, maybe 20, maybe 16, somewhere around that region. And, you know, I can barely read this without tears because it speaks of a father's affection for his children. He said this. He said, My dear father walked with me for the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to the scene, for the last half a mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand while his long flowing yellow hair, then yellow but in later years white as snow, streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand, held it firmly for a minute in silence. He passed his son off to accomplish everything he's been praying for. And he said solemnly and affectionately, he said, God bless you, my son. Your Father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with his head uncovered where I'd left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. And then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I'd left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home and began to return his head still uncovered. I don't know why. I just... His heart, I felt sure, began to return. His head still uncovered. 
His heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze. And then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. Let's just pray. God, how I long for moms and dads in this this room to be like this. To so dedicate their children to the cause of Christ that they would constantly gather the children around them on their knees and pour out hearts of prayers to you for the heathen and hearts of prayers to you for the daily need John Patton's father was not a rich man. He didn't have much leisurely time on his hand, but the time that he had, he devoted to you and to his family. And so, God, I pray that that would be the case of fathers here, of mothers here, and that we children would rise up like John Patton and and expect great things from you and do great things for you. God, I pray even you now, just anoint this message as we see even the Apostle Paul being a bit like John Patton's father for others to grow and prosper in their faith. Help us now, God, I pray your Spirit would touch us and lead us in all truth and righteousness. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I believe that John Patton's missionary success was no accident. It didn't just happen. I believe that much of the success of his missionary endeavors, listen, had to do with his father. He had a father who cared deeply for him. He had a father who often demonstrated his affection for his his children. And John Patton also had a a father who prayed fervently for his son. And I just think about John Patton as he landed on Aniwa. And as he landed on Vanuatu, and as he landed on all those islands in the New Hebrides, did he know what his father was doing back home? He knew full well that his father was praying for him. I'm sure of that. He prayed for him for years in his presence. And as we come to our text here in Colossians chapter 2, we see Paul having a similar care and concern for the well-being of others. We see a man pouring his heart out for these people whom he had never met and who was distanced from them for hundreds of miles. And yet Paul prayed for these people. We already saw his prayer in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. That these people, these in Colossae might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respect, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And now we're going to see even more of his prayer as it derives really from his great care and concern for them. Let's look at the text. I know Phil has read it, but I want to read it again. Put it in our context. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. Paul says, I want you, Colossians, to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged 
having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, unlike John Patton, those in Colossae didn't have the privilege of personally experiencing the the listening to Paul's tender affection for them in his prayers. They, They couldn't hear the Apostle Paul pray for them or understand his heart. Instead, Paul had to say, you know what, I want you to know my great heart for you and my great agony for you. My first point this morning is simply this. It comes from verses 1 and 5. It's Paul's care. Paul's care for these people. Notice how he describes his care. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. The word translated here, struggle, is a Greek word, agon, <clears throat> from which we get the word agony. It describes a, a wrestling or an anguish. Picture the athlete who is out just, just groaning as much as he can. Picture the U.S. soccer team down to nine men as they were yesterday against Italy, running and agonizing and striving. I heard um, on the news that Landon Donovan was so exhausted after the game they played last, yesterday in Germany that he just fell on the ground, kind of exhausted. He needed to have an IV in his arm to recuperate from all the fluids that he lost during the game with so few men running around the field for 45 minutes against a, an outnumbered <clears throat> or an Italian team that had 10 players. That was Paul's word here. It is an athletic word. It describes an intense struggle. It's come up before in chapter 1, verse 29. For this purpose I labor, striving according to His power. There it is. I'm, I'm wrestling. I'm, I'm straining. I am in agony. And that's the message of my ti- the message of my title this morning, right? The title of my message is A Great Agony. He had a great agony for the people in Colossae. It came out of a deep concern for them. He cared for them, therefore he agonized for them. And obviously, his agony was really expressed in his prayers. I mean, after all, Paul's in prison, hundreds of miles away. He'd never seen these people before. The only way he could agonize directly for them was to pray for them. And that's what verse 2 expresses. It expresses his prayers. Agony is that their hearts may be encouraged. But you know what's interesting is Paul wasn't the only one to agonize for these people in prayer. Turn over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 12. There we see Epaphras who initially started the church. We see Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, send you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand fully assured in all the will of God. And again, we see him laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. What word do you think that is in the Greek text? It's the same word, agon. He is agonizing for you. In this context, it's translated laboring earnestly. Some translations might say struggling. The NIV uses this wrestling word. Always wrestling in prayer for you. Struggling, wrestling, agonizing. Here was Epaphras with Paul, hundreds of miles away, praying for His people. 
And from all likelihood, Epaphras was the one who established the church. And he had a heart for these people that simply just wouldn't leave him. He was pleading before the Lord for them, desperately wanting for them to stand firm in the faith. And like Paul, as he was in prison, couldn't get to home to the church that he established. And so he did the only thing that he could do. He just prayed for them. And it seems reasonable to assume that Paul learned of these people in Colossae through the passion of prayers of Epaphras. I mean, you think about what is it that landed, that placed in John Patton's soul a desire to go to the heathen lands with the gospel of Christ? Was not much of it to be credited to the passionate prayers of his father as he listened to him pour out his heart before a God who is real? And I think similarly, what is it to put in Paul a heart and desire to plead for these people at Colossae? Was it not the passionate prayers of Epaphras that Paul was able to hear and to overhear in the prison? I mean, look at chapter 13. Paul himself says, I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Colossae, Laodicea and Hierapolis, all similar cities close by. Maybe not similar cities, but they're close by. Laodicea was about 10 miles from Colossae. Hierapolis was about 13 miles from Colossae. They all were situated in the Lycus Valley. All were kind of sister cities right there. I I believe they were close enough to feel the impact of the the ripple effect of the church that Epaphras started in Colossae. I I think that people heard of what took place in Colossae and the sort of merchants traveling between here. Perhaps some believers, I believe, came in Laodicea and Hierapolis as well. In, In all these three cities, there were believers in them. And it says here that Epaphras was laboring, deeply concerned for them, praying passionately for them. In fact, Paul could give testimony to them. And I believe that Paul merely was caught along by the passionate prayers of Epaphras. He said, you're praying so passionately for these people. Boy, this must be important. And he began to have a heart as well that would speak to the Lord and would pray to the Lord. I mean, think about what are you going to do in prison? But maybe write and read and pray. It's about all you can do. That's what Paul was doing with Epaphras. You can picture both these hearts, these men, Epaphras and Paul, praying and laboring earnestly for these people. You know what? And they weren't updated with constant prayer requests. They didn't know what was going on. I mean, mail between these places took months. But they constantly prayed. And even we've seen in chapter 1 how spiritually minded their prayer was. And we'll see in a bit here in chapter 2, about what Paul exactly was praying for them. But I want you to see that even Paul's, the scope of Paul's prayers are exactly like those of Epaphras. Look in chapter 2, verse 1 again. He's, he's struggling on your behalf, that is, those in Colossae to whom the letter was being written, and he's praying for those in Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, probably meaning Hierapolis as well. The scope of Paul's prayers was exactly the same. And I think he prayed for them because he cared for them. And I think at this point, it's a great place to stop and to think about application, right? I mean, Paul, in praying such as our model, Paul cares as we ought to care and he prays as we ought to pray. He agonizes in prayer. Let me just ask you, do you know anything of this sort of prayer 
agonizing in prayer? Do you know anything of that? Do you ever wrestle and agonize with God in prayer? Pleading for Him to do the impossible? Have you ever been like Jacob who wrestled with God all night long in prayer and refused to let Him go until God would bless him? Pouring out your heart. Have you ever had seasons of prayer? What's the longest you've ever prayed? Fifteen minutes, an hour, three hours? All night? How long? Ever pray? Just agonizing and struggling. Feeling like when you're done, you need an IV to restore yourself because you're so exhausted and so tired. Do you ever take heaven by storm and ask for the things that are simply beyond the scope of anything that you have any power to do? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. God can do way beyond anything we can ever ask for or think. Do you ever ask for and think about things way beyond what even you can think about? Do you have a heart and a care for the well-being of others that would pray on their behalf, longing for God to help others in their distress and difficulty? Do you care that much to pray? You know, this is Paul's heart not to be ours as well. And, you know, I think about the last year of my life, maybe the last two years, and I think I've wrestled and agonized in prayer more than ever before in my life. There have been circumstances in our lives where even Yvonne and I, we've had conversations and we said, you know what? We just need divine help. As a husband and wife, we've fasted together. In fact, Chris, remember that one time we even joined you in on fasting with us to say, we need God's help in this. Let's just fast together as a family. And let's come together and plead God's grace and His kindness in our situation. We've earnestly entreated the Lord. Have you ever done that? That's what Paul was doing. And Paul was struggling. I mean, he could have struggled that for himself in prison, but he was struggling for himself, for others. And I say the Lord's been faithful through it all. Is that you? I find it real interesting here. As Paul, Paul prays for those in Colossae, he wanted to make sure that they knew how much he cared. He really wanted to make sure that, that they know that he's praying for them. Isn't that the point? I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. I want you to know that I am praying for you. In other words, I want you to know how great a care and concern I have for you, that I'm laboring and I'm striving and wrestling to God on your behalf. I mean, that's the point of verse 5 also. He's saying, I've got this care for you. Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. He's saying this, I'm not there with you in Colossae. But you know what? I'm with you in Colossae. My body physically is here in prison, but with my spirit, I am with you all. I want you to know that. And I long to see you stand firm in your faith in Christ. Right? The end of verse 5 there. I long to see your stability of faith in Christ. 
So Paul is really making his desires known to them. He's not hiding his requests. Listen, let me ask you. Has anybody ever told you that they were praying for you? What does it do to your soul? Does that, does that encourage your soul? Does it lift up your soul? I, I, I know for me that anytime people say, hey, I'm really praying for you. I'm like, there's, there's something there that helps. And we need to be telling others we're praying for them because of the encouragement that it is. And I don't know how it works, but if someone tells me they're praying for me, I am I'm just I'm encouraged. I'm strengthened. So they're going before God and that God is going to be pleaded on my behalf to help me. And I think, listen, if you're praying for other people in specific ways, maybe you want to encourage them by telling them, you know what, I'm praying for you and here's what I'm praying for you. I've done that periodically with some people here at church. I can think of some even now. I've told some people this past week. I'm praying for you that this would take place. Just can't constantly remind them. They're like, okay. And I trust it's an encouragement to them because I know it's been an encouragement to me. That's what Paul says. I want you to know how much I care. Well, that's Paul's first point, Paul's care. Verses 1 and 5. Let's now look at Paul's prayer. Verses 2 and 3. He prays that their hearts, or even that your hearts in Colossae, that those in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis and those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Fundamentally, Paul's praying for their encouragement. Isn't that what he says? I'm praying that their hearts may be encouraged. You know, Paul is fully aware of the difficulties surrounding the Colossians. They converted to Christ out of paganism. And as a result of that, there's much tension in the community. What is this church about? You know, who is this Christ? How is this going to work out? And there's also a tension, not only in just the community and society-wise, but there's also a tension upon the church because we see in the rest of chapter 2 that there, there are people coming along just saying, hey, your, your Christ is good, but you need this. Your Christ is good, but you need this. I mean, look at how spiritual we are. Look at how good we have it. And they might be discouraged to think of these other people might look better. I mean, these at the Colossian church might feel inferior to those claiming to have this special knowledge. I mean... Think, if someone comes up to you and says, oh, I've got this special knowledge, right? No. lifts himself up. Isn't that sometimes discouraging to you? It comes out of jealousy or something. But if these people come in saying, hey, that is great knowledge, they might feel inferior and discouraged. Or they might say if they're missing out because they weren't being truly spiritual and going through these religious practices or they might feel lacking because they have not had this special supernatural experience. Or they might feel dirty and polluted because they've not stayed away from the foods that these people are telling them to stay away from. Or they might not feel so committed because they don't impose such self, harsh self-discipline upon themselves. And Paul sought the Lord earnestly that they would be encouraged rather than discouraged might come from society, might come from people from within the church trying to persuade them away. But, but listen, it might come from within the church as well. It might come from Christians. Paul was fully aware of the sin within the church that can be very discouraging. 
Because when people fail to put aside their own practices and express an anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech toward one another, it can be pretty discouraging. And when people sin against one another in the church, it can be a discouraging thing. And that's why Paul, then in chapter 3, addresses them of how to walk in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and how to forbear with one another in love. Because when people sin against you, it can be discouraging. And so Paul says, I want you to be encouraged. Praying to God that they would be encouraged. That their hearts would be lifted. Who wants encouragement today? Yeah, absolutely. Paul's praying that they would be <clears throat> encouraged. And he prays for them, first of all, two ways they might be encouraged. First of all, is that they would be united in love. Having been knit together in love. Well, I trust you know what a sweater looks like. Today's a hot summer day. I didn't think anyone would bring a sweater. And so I, I brought a, a sweater as an object lesson. This is knit together. Now, this is my mom's sweater. My mom knit this for me. I have probably four sweaters that my mom has knit for me. She's like knitting queen. All right? She's probably knit well over 100 sweaters in her life. No. How many? Higher. Like how many? Several hundred, hundred sweats. She knows knitting. And um, so I'm, I'm like a, a rank amateur looking at this. But as I look at this sweater, I, I, I see the, the yarn going in and out and in and out and in and out and being woven and knit together. And that's what Paul says. You know, this should be what the church is like woven and knit together. And when the church is like that, you know what happens? There's great encouragement. I mean, that's the way in which they would be encouraged, right? Their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together just like a sweater does. And it's a sweater. You know, there's a unity in the sweater. The yarn goes in and out, so closely woven together, it doesn't fall apart. And it holds together as a whole. And you think about the yarn, how much other yarn it's going right up against and right, you know, rubbing up against. That is exactly what Paul is saying the church ought to be. Our lives ought to mix and mingle together with one another. You know, over in chapter 3, he mentions of how crucial love is to the unity of the church. You know, compassion is good, kindness is good, humility is good, gentleness is good. Patience is good. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other is good. But verse 14 of chapter 3 says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is the thing that binds Christians together. You know, I had a great illustration this past week. I visited a doctor this past week. And, uh, you know, unbeknownst to you, in recent years, I've had several moles, like, growing on my head. And um, they've just, I've just noticed them bigger and bigger in recent days. And, um, in fact, I probably have uh, Andrew Krauss to uh, thank mostly for um, the acknowledgement of how big these things are. Because Andrew and I have this little game we play. You guys know what a noogie is? How many, has Andrew ever given you guys noogies? Well, Andrew and I have this agreement. He says, whenever we gather together in church, once each day we gather, we can like sneak up behind each other and give each other a noogie. Okay, you, you wrap their head around your arm like this. You've got to rub their head like that. And um, 
But he's been giving me noogies in uh, recent weeks, and uh, it's been hurting on, on my top head. So I went, and I had them removed. And so I'm not sure if you can see. I've got some stitches here on both, both parts of my head here. And um, the doctor cut off the bad, and then what did he do? He took stitches, and he stitched up the, the hole that he cut. And you know what? Love is the perfect bond of unity. Love is the stitch that brings the skin together that heals the wounds that are caused. It's a great illustration. If you look at my, my head and see my stitches, you might say, ah, that's love. So stitches hold the parts of the head together. So you want to see a church that's united? Where people are encouraged, promote love among the brethren because love is the perfect bond of unity. And I'm going to say, of anything that I have sought to promote over the years at Rock Valley Bible Church, it is for all of you to mix and mingle your lives together in love. Because the church is really built and established upon the relationships we have with one another. And to the extent that our relationships are strong, we are strong. And to the extent that our relationships are weak, we are weak. And so I encourage you, as you interact with people of your church, of the church, Think of yourself, do I so interact with the people of the church so as to love them, to be an encouragement to them? As I speak, do I speak words of encouragement to other people? Do I demonstrate through acts of kindness my preference for others and my love for others or am I centered more on myself? Paul says, knit together in love, right? Mix and mingle and rub against other people. And I just say, to the extent that we're building others up, we're building up one another, we'll be knit together in love. And to the extent that we tear one another down, we'll be unraveled like a tangled ball of yarn. You know, and I just say, when your relationships among those at church are right and you're loving one another, it is joy. And when you have that, you're not going to be seeking other things. I think that's even a direct application right here of the text. Is that when people are encouraged and their heart knit together, when someone comes along and says, hey, I've got this special thing over here, you'd be like, why do I need that? What I've got right here is enough. Or when someone says, hey, you want to be really fulfilled, fulfill the Sabbath day with me. You might say, well, why do I need to do that? I'm already feel fulfilled. Or someone says, hey, you need a supernatural experience to experience God. You might just say, I'm already experiencing love in the family of God. What's more supernatural than that? And I think that this text is teaching us when the church is knit together in love, you're protected from error because you're not seeking outside where you want to go or other people saying or trying to pull you away and, and uh, persuade you. You're fully satisfied in your love towards one another. Well, Paul prays that they would be encouraged. How? By being knit together in love. And the second way that they might be encouraged is become full of knowledge. United in love and now full of knowledge. That's what the last half of verse 2 and all of verse 3 speak about. Now, when you read these things, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. It's difficult to know exactly, like, what exactly is he talking about? I mean, as I read this here, listen in your mind for how many times... He mentions wisdom or knowledge or understanding. I mean, just, just kind of think about this, okay? I'm going to read this. And attaining to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When you boil all of what he's saying down, it basically says this. It says, we're praying that they would understand, that you would understand that all they need to know is Christ. You don't need to know extra special philosophy. You don't need to know tradition. You don't need to know Jewish festivals and Sabbath days. You don't need to know angels. You don't need to know what to eat and what not to eat and what to do and what not to do. You simply need to know Jesus. So he's saying that you need to have come to have a, a full knowledge of how in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You just need to trust in Jesus. It's that simple. A man named Robert Fulgham wrote a book entitled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Have you heard of that book before? I'm not exactly sure. I know nothing about the book, so I'm not promoting the book. I I, I literally, I had no idea who wrote it. I just, the title's great. All I really need to know I learned in kindergarten. And he's saying that wisdom is not the top of the graduate school, but they're in the sand pile at school, right? Where you need to learn to share your toys. And where you need to learn to be kind with your words. You need to learn not to hit each other. And you need to learn to clean up afterwards. And that's what he's talking about. Just the simple things in life. Common sense. You learn by the time you're age five. Well, a man named Cliff Schimmels then followed up this book by, by this. All I really need to know, I learned in Sunday school. I'm not sure if you've heard of that book either. I, I've heard of the book, but you know what? I, I don't know anything about the book. I'm not promoting the book. But I just like the title because, again, I think it's good. Because he's simply saying that the necessary things of religion are what is taught in children's church and in Sunday school. Christ died for my sins. This I believe. This I trust. That's it. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's what Paul's saying. And really, on the one hand, this is all you need to know. In fact, we looked yesterday at men's equippers to uh, this phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul said this, I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My ministry among you, Corinthians, was, was just one thing, just Christ and Him crucified. Like, that's the only thing you need to know. On the one hand, that is the case. But on the other hand, you know what? There's a bit more to it than that. Because though, though it's simple... It is deep and profound. Or, to use Paul's word, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you want to find wisdom and knowledge? What do you do? You look in Christ and you can dig and dig and dig and you'll find all your knowledge there. Do you remember Mary Poppins? When uh, she was hired as a nanny, she came up to a room with this carpet bag and Michael and Jane were watching her every step. And in this room, she saw was a bit unfurnished. And so she pulled out her carpet bag. And you remember what she started pulling out of that carpet bag? What did she pull out? This big lamp, you know. And just kind of pull out. And I remember, I loved that movie, looking at Michael. Michael's face was like... And he's pulling out, she's pulling out this, and she pulls out a mirror, and she pulls out this potted plant, you know, that's perfect. It hadn't tipped over anything. That's Christ. Is it's in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom. Though it's simple, it's only one carpet bag. You look into it and it expands big. You know, Jesus Christ is a bit like Einstein's theory of relativity. E equals MC squared. 
It takes but a moment to write that down or to say it. And yet, volumes and volumes of physics textbooks are devoted to fully understanding and applying the whole theory of relativity. I was a physics major and I still don't understand it. It's simple, but listen, it is deep and profound. And you can look forever into the depths of wisdom and knowledge of God that's in Christ Jesus and you'll never exhaust it. The greatest minds that ever walked on the planet have looked into Christ Jesus and made a study of Christ be their greatest pursuit and none of them have ever reached the bottom of understanding the fullness of the riches of wisdom in there. I remember at the end of the book of John, John chapter 20, verse 25, John writes, And there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. It's a simple message. John is like the most simple message of all the Gospel writers, right? Look and see and believe. That's what John is about. See, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. It's far from trivial. Though it's simple, it's far from trivial. But here's the key, though. Listen, all wisdom is found in Christ. The error of those in Colossae was that they were looking to find their knowledge and wisdom from outside of Christ by adding something to Him. See, the, the danger is that you would look to see spiritual wisdom from people who are in the secular world and try to add He says, no, no, no. you just look at Christ. And I say, listen, the exhortation comes straight to us. Let us be students of God's Word. And let us search and inquire and delve deeply into this person of Christ where all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And Paul's praying that they would know this. Paul's prayers for encouragement, how? United in love and full of knowledge. Listen, I just say, when you're full of knowledge, content in Christ, having the wisdom and knowledge comes, you will be encouraged. There's something about Christ and Him crucified that encourages our hearts despite whatever circumstance are going on in your life. Well, that's Paul's prayer. We've seen Paul's care. We've seen Paul's prayer. And how you like this outline? Paul's scare. Verse 4. Paul's scare. He says this, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Paul had a fear. He was fearful these people would be persuaded away from the simple message of Christ. In his mind, he pictured someone coming into Colossae or Laodicea or Hierapolis with some academic qualifications, some abilities to speak and come alongside those in the church, speak nice sounding words to persuade them away from the simple truth of the Gospel of Christ. I remember in my mind, you know, I didn't prepare this. Oklahoma, I think that might be the musical, where the guy comes into River City and uh, he says, you got trouble. Music man, okay, whatever. You got trouble right here in River City. Right? You got P that, T that rhymes with P that stands for pool, right? And uh, as I remember correctly, these people didn't realize they had trouble. The music man came in and said, you guys have all this trouble here. And kind of persuaded them, oh, I guess we do have trouble. That's what Paul was concerned about, about these people coming in. And, and their deception would be subtle. They wouldn't necessarily dis- disagree with anything Epaphras said. They'd simply say that Christ wasn't sufficient. That carpet bag you have, well, you need this big suitcase also. You need something else. 
In fact, the majority of chapter 2 is really devoted to Paul dealing with how these people were wrong. And in every single circumstance, he always brought it back to Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's in Christ, right? Let's look at verse 8. See to it that no one take you captive through philosophy or empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, right? Because there are philosophies and there are deceptions and there are traditions. But those aren't according to Christ, is what he says. And don't be persuaded by those things because those things don't have anything to do with Christ. It's Christ. Or look at verse 16. Those people who come in will act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And Paul says, it's not about festivals and Sabbath days and new moons, right? Because those are just shadows pointing to the substance, which is Christ in verse 17. Or in verse 18, he speaks about those delighting themselves in self-abasement, worship of angels, taking a stand on visions, inflated without cause. And these people are having a problem because they're not holding fast, verse 19, to the head. Who's Christ? They're being inflated on other things rather than Jesus. In verse 21, 20 and 21, we have people creating these rules. Don't handle this. Don't taste this. Don't taste that. And Paul says, almost in astonishment, in verse 20, if you've died with Christ, how is it that you would submit yourself to these rules? Because it's in Christ that you're satisfied. These rules, they might have an appearance of wisdom, but they're not. No value against fleshly indulgence. And in every single instance, Paul's taken them back to the center core of it all is Jesus Christ. He's fearful that they're going to slip away. But he wants them to stand firm. And that's really what verse 5 is talking about. It does talk about his care, but he says this, I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. I, I, I long, I want to rejoice in seeing that when these people come, you're going to stand firm on the gospel. You're going to stand firm in your justification in Christ and Christ alone. He wanted to hear of them being tempted by Satan to despair. And he wanted to hear of them tempted by Satan accusing them of the guilt within. And then how would they respond as the hymn says? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. That's how he wanted to see them act and respond. He wanted to see them when trials came upon them and, and discouraged them. Paul wanted to see them trust in their great high priest who can help them and give them grace in time of need. That's trusting in Christ through the sovereign trials that have come upon your life. He wanted to see them be stable and have good discipline and not be persuaded away by a persuasive argument of some smooth talker. Well, let me ask you, how did the church at Colossae do? How they do? You know, we don't know how they did. But, we do know how other churches in the, the, the Lycan Valley um, happened, how, what happened to them. We do know what took place in Laodicea. Paul was praying for these people. You know what? It's not good. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Laodicea was one of the seven churches to whom John wrote in his book of the Revelation. 
In this chapter, we see that all of Paul's fears were realized. The church at Laodicea drifted. This was written, most believe, about 90 A.D. Some believe 60 A.D. I think probably 90 A.D. might be better. Some 30 years after Paul had written his letter to the Colossians, which, chapter 4, verse 16 of Colossians, was to be read at Laodicea. So the Laodiceans heard this warning. And yet, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we read this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will <coughs> spit you out of my mouth. That's what he says. You know, it's almost as if these words are exactly describing the error that Paul's seeking to avoid. These coming in with, with uh, persuasive arguments were seeking not to get rid of Jesus. They would know that would be bad, but to kind of add to and supplement Jesus deflected the attention away from Jesus. And, and here in Laodicea, you don't have anti-Christian activities going on. They didn't follow in the errors of Balaam as those of Pergamum did. They didn't follow the immorality of Jezebel as those in Thyatira did. But though they didn't go all the way to immorality or idolatry, they, they weren't on fire for the Lord. They were, they were like right in the middle someplace. I think it's because their message was diluted weren't hot, weren't cold. And I think that the church at Laodicea was condemned, spit out of the mouth because of a mixed up, watered down message where certainly there are things that are good, but it was so watered down that it became lukewarm rather than hot or cold. And the result is that Jesus spit them out of His mouth. That's how important these things are. To be persuaded away by fine-sounding argument will lead to destruction in the end. And I say it's sad. Over the history of the church, this has always happened. Very few churches start wrong. You know, it's not just among the cults. I'm talking about mainline denominations. They, if you look back at the history, do you know why there's a Methodist church in every town across the land? Itinerant. Preachers would go out and preach in one city and another city and another city and another city, right? Following Charles Wesley. And these men were right. Preaching the gospel of grace and preaching the word and coming in and churches were established. Methodist churches. And yet today, the United Methodist Church has kind of drifted into other things. Many would deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Many would deny the virgin birth in that denomination. I mean, certainly there are lights in there. But for the vast part of it, I mean, the, the doctrine of the denomination has drifted from the centrality of Christ crucified. And that's just one denomination. Many other, in fact, most denominations, I'd say if they've been around for any season, they just drift always the case. That's why there's always a need for new works to start up. And, and it didn't just happen like, boom, they're over here. They just, they just drift and lose it. Maybe they get bored with Jesus. Maybe they miss the centrality of the cross. They start adding something else. 
some other program, some other worldly wisdom, some other degree somebody comes in, someone else teaches it, and they just start persuading away and moving away. And I just say, at our church, it's easy to drift from the centrality of the gospel. In my life, it is easy to drift from the centrality of Christ as well. You know, in fact, in Men's Equippers, you know, I handed out yesterday a book, uh, the, the Cross-Centered Life. Just to put that to the men, the ladies are going to be reading that also at some point, and just to put it in the men's hands and say, you know what, our lives need to be always, always centered and focused upon Christ and Him crucified. And we as a church need to be there as well. And I just say this, it's easy to forget, and we need to plead to the Lord that He would make us not forget but that we would always remember that it's in Christ that all the wisdom, treasures of wisdom and knowledge are. So let's pray to Him and pray that He would keep us remembering these crucial things. So let's pray. God, it seems as if the application comes the same week in, week out. It's because we need to be reminded of the centrality of Christ and the cross. Lord, that's our only trust, our only faith is in Him. And so, God, I do pray that in every way that Christ Jesus would, would reign and rule in our lives, that we would find a, a full knowledge of Him to know that though we can simply trust and obey Him, God, yet in Him so many things are deep and profound of how a husband and a wife ought to act with one another is because of Jesus and how He acted. How we ought to serve others in church is directly the same as how Christ acted as a servant. The way He suffered is how we're to suffer. The way that Christ was righteous is the way that we're righteous by faith. Because Christ was condemned, we aren't condemned. All these things, God, they're just riches of wisdom and wealth and knowledge. And, and I pray that You would help keep us centered upon Christ and Him crucified. That always You would keep us from drifting. Keep us from straying from the simple truths of Jesus loves me, this I know. God, I, I know in my own life how I need that help. And I know how we as a church need that help. And I know how the church at large needs that help. I pray You'd be gracious to cause us not to be like Laodicea, Lord, but to be like Sardis, who's called to be faithful to death. It would be like Philadelphia, the faithful church, faithfully keeping the message, the gospel of Christ. Oh, we need your help, God. I pray you'd come among us. In Jesus' name, amen.